Last week we looked at 1 Kings 2. We saw that the kingdom was firmly established in Solomon's hands. This morning we had to look at 1 Kings 3 with Solomon's famous request for wisdom from God and then a very familiar story, I'm sure, for many of us of Solomon's execution of the wisdom God gives him. We'll be reading from 1 Kings 3. Before we read, let's pray together. God, you show yourself again and again and again in your word to give to your people what they ask for, when it's asked for your glory and for our good, and so we pray that you give us understanding of your word today. Teach us by it, correct us, rebuke us, train us in righteousness for your name's sake. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and upright and righteous in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice. I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commandments, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, My Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, No, the living one is my son, the dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours, the living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. 
The king said, this one says, my son is alive and your son is dead. Well, that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. And the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order. Cut the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave this ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. I suspect that you have shared with me in a common experience, the experience of coming into a situation that overwhelms you and for which you feel outmatched. I've had a number of these, and I'm sure you have as well, a number of these situations. I can remember when Caleb was born, I held him in my hands for the first time, and, and I looked at this child, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm a father, this is a human being, and I am responsible for him. I have to feed him, I have to provide for him, I have to protect him, I have to teach him, i got to teach him to love the Lord and to pray. All of this crushed out me. I'm trying to call my mom on the phone, and I'm like, Mom, the baby came. And I can't get the words out because it crushed me in that moment how deep and profound the responsibility that I had just come into was. I think of my first funeral, I've mentioned before, my first funeral, I had been a pastor for about a month, and I'd never done a funeral before, and it was for an unbeliever whose nearest relative who was a believer was a sister-in-law. When I came here, I was 27 years old, I come to First Church, and I realized in the first month that we're going to be changing denominations for the first time in 155 years. That's quite the first month on the job. You probably have similar experiences in your life. Maybe it's a first day of school, maybe it's a new job, maybe it's a difficult conversation you have to have, maybe it's a diagnosis of some kind of a disease that you're going to be dealing with for some prolonged time, maybe it's having to or wanting to share the gospel with someone but not really being sure what to say or how to say it. We have things in our lives which are overwhelming to us. Certainly, Solomon was no exception. Solomon becomes king at a relatively young age. He's in his 20s, and his father David has died, and now he becomes king. He's king of a nation which had been ruled or governed by or led by men like Abraham and Moses and Samuel and Joshua and David. Those are big shoes to fill. Not only that, but he's king at this young age, and he has a a significant kingdom full of citizens and and people that has expanded, and other nations are subject to him because of the military prowess of his father. But even beyond that, these are God's people. And that's quite a responsibility. Solomon feels the weight of it. He feels overwhelmed by the responsibility. He feels outmatched by the responsibility. But as we see, he turns to exactly the right person to give him what he needs to meet the challenge which has confronted him. Before we get to that, we see in verses 1, 2, and 3 that the Lord presents to us in his word a number of the themes that are going to carry us through the remainder of the narrative about Solomon. So look at verses 1, 2, and 3 with me. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. 
He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. So the first thing that's introduced to us here is that Solomon is a king of international significance. Egypt is, is not trying to conquer Israel, is not trying to conquer Solomon. Instead, they're allying with Solomon. They're making a deal with Solomon. And to seal this alliance, Solomon takes Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh offers his daughter to Solomon as his wife as a sign and a seal of pledge of their mutual affection and cooperation. That's a fairly common thing to happen in the ancient Near East. Yet, even having said that, we can hear in our minds ringing the echoes of Deuteronomy 17.17, which says, The king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Solomon takes Pharaoh's wife, or Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter would have come with Pharaoh's gods and Pharaoh's worship. Not only that, but at this time, Solomon is probably already married an Ammonite princess to whom Rehoboam was going to be born, Solomon's oldest son. Solomon has already begun accumulating foreign wives who are going to turn his heart astray. Now there's no clear note of condemnation of Solomon yet at this point. But it's like the first cells of a disease or a cancer. They go undetected. Then they grow and they metastasize and these, these deadly cells of disobedience to God are eventually going to result in the untimely death not only of Solomon himself but of his united kingdom. The second theme introduced to us is Solomon's building projects. A good part of what the scripture tells us about Solomon tells us about his building of the temple complex, the government complex, and the wall. Now the city of David was walled in David's own days, but Solomon about doubles the size of Jerusalem during the time of his reign. And so he builds a wall around the second part of the city. We'll come back to this more later. But the third theme introduced to us is the location of the worship of God. This is going to be a theme we see throughout the book of Kings. That in this time, David had begun to centralize the worship of his people. He'd taken the Ark of the Covenant, he'd brought it to Jerusalem, he placed it on Mount Moriah, which is where Abraham had been willing to sacrifice Isaac before the Lord had stopped him, and that was to be the central place for worship. Eventually, Solomon will build the temple where this Ark of the Covenant had been placed, where Abraham had been willing to make that greatest of Old Testament sacrifices, but there's no temple yet. And the people are worshiping on high places throughout the region, and that's, to one degree or another, okay, and we see that God still has favor for Solomon. But once the temple is built, all the worship, all the sacrifices are to be made in this temple. Solomon is worshiping on high places. That's okay for now. But he's going to continue this habit even after he builds the temple at great cost. And that is not going to be okay. So these are the three themes. But then we see that while there's some yellow flags raised about Solomon, still he's in God's good graces at this moment. And God shows great kindness to Solomon in verses 4 and 5. We read, The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. 
At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. That's quite the invitation. Ask for whatever you want me to give you. If God comes to you and asks you, or invites you and says, ask for whatever you want me to give you, what do you ask for? What do you want most? Maybe to be king of the world. I'll make everything right. I'll fix the problems that ail us. North Korea and South Korea just made peace. If I was king of the world, the whole world could have peace. Maybe it's money or success. Maybe it's a new Jeep. That would be nice. We can think of all kinds of things we would ask for. Maybe it's health. Maybe it would be to, to be able to see a, a, a loved one who's died just one more time and sit and talk with them again. Maybe it would be to have a loved one raised from the dead. Maybe health, comfort. Comfort in mind, comfort in body, comfort in the soul. What would we ask for? If God invites us to come and ask for just one thing that we desire most. Before we get to what Solomon asks for, consider the invitation that God gives him. Ask for whatever you want me to give. Now note that he doesn't say, ask for whatever you want, and I will give you whatever you want, no matter what it is. Right? God does not turn himself into Solomon's genie in a bottle. Right? He's not the genie from Aladdin. He reserves the right to say no to what Solomon asks for, yet it's still a very gracious invitation. Ask me for whatever you want. Would you like an invitation like that? Would you like it if God comes to you and says, ask me for whatever you want? Well, you have it. Jesus says in John 14, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father will do it. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now that's not a name it, claim it. Right? That's not, in Jesus' name, I want a Jeep. And poof, there's a Jeep. Right? In Jesus' name, I want my cancer to be gone. Poof, I'm healthy. Right? In Jesus' name, I want to live forever. No, that's not how it works. Right? But Jesus invites us to ask for things that bring glory to his name and to the name of God his Father. And when we ask for things that bring glory to God, when we ask for things in line with the will of God, he promises to answer those prayers. God does not promise to say yes to every prayer. We should be thankful that God does not say yes to everything we have prayed for. Amen? But God does yet still answer prayer. When we ask for God to build his church, as the saints have asked for for 2,000 years, he builds his church. When we ask for wisdom, as James says, in faith, we will receive wisdom. And that's exactly here what Solomon asks for, and Solomon asks for it with a striking amount of humility. Look at verses 6 through 9. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. 
you have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to set on his throne to this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Solomon begins this prayer spending three verses of the prayer saying back to God what God has done and how good God is. He begins by speaking of God's kindness to David, that he had given David the kingdom. And he says that now he has given David's kingdom against all the odds to Solomon. He remembers that it is God's kingdom. And God decides who the king is going to be. And these are God's people. And so he says back to God that he acknowledges that though he is king, God is king. And then on top of that, he reminds God, he remembers before God that God keeps his promises. He says again, your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. And here Solomon remembers God's promises to Abraham. God had promised Abraham in Genesis 13 and 22, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. We had a big dust storm a couple nights ago. It's been wreaking havoc on my allergies. I woke up and it looked like I had driven my car through the mud. It happened all around the city. There's dust everywhere. You can't count the dust. So God promises you will not be able to count Abraham's offspring. They will be so great. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon notices in his own day that God is, even before his very eyes, keeping his promise he had made to Abraham hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Have you ever had something promised to you that was never delivered? Maybe it was a toy or a treat from a teacher or a parent, something like that. Maybe it was a a job or a promotion you were promised but never came about. It's discouraging, it's disheartening to have things promised that are not delivered. But God never does that to us. If God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. And Solomon is owning that for himself here, recognizing that though it has been over a thousand years since God had made a promise to Abraham, or nearly a thousand years, yet in this very moment, God has kept his promise Solomon. So Solomon uses the the bulk of his prayer to praise, and then having praised out of an overflowing heart of gratitude, out of affection for God, now Solomon asks, give your servant a discerning heart. That's Solomon's famous request for wisdom. Before we get to God's answer to Solomon's request, consider what just happened. God invited Solomon to pray. And Solomon prayed. That seems obvious, right? God invited Solomon to pray, and Solomon prays. 
It seems obvious, but I have recognized that for many people, there are very few things more terrifying than praying. Perhaps for some people, the only thing more terrifying than prayer is having to share the gospel with someone. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, but I think it perhaps is particularly true of churches like ours and churches in communities like ours. We'll go to church, we'll go to potlucks, we'll sing songs, we'll give money, we'll send our kids to Christian school, but please, oh please, don't ask me to pray. And I just, I don't, I don't get it. God invites us to pray. God instructs us to pray. He asks us to pray. And not just those of us who are ordained, mind you, he gives that to all of us. James says in the book of James, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Those are public acts that we confess to each other and we pray for each other, with each other. Our, our religion is not meant to be private. We talk to and we talk about the things and the people that we love the most. Now, I want to say this graciously. I want to say it as one of us, okay? So hear me saying this as one of us, not at you, but with you. I think perhaps the greatest weakness, or at least one of the greatest weaknesses of our church, is that we have privatized our religion so much that we have handicapped ourselves and we are no longer able to pray out loud with each other or speak of the Lord out loud with each other. We are no longer able to speak joyfully and publicly about the Lord with other people. The things of God are not meant to be scary. The things of God, including prayer, are meant to be life-giving for ourselves and for others. And the things of God are meant for the people of God to be normal. So prayer should be normal for and among the people of God. But the objection goes, and I understand it, I don't know what to pray. That's okay. It's understandable that you would come before God, who is holy and the maker of all things, and who is righteous and just and good, and say, I don't know what to say to such a God. Well, we are people of the book, aren't we? We read the Bible. We preach the Bible, we sing the Bible, and we can pray the Bible. God tells us what to pray. Jesus, who was very good at praying, tells us what to pray. Remember the things he tells us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, may your name be hallowed. That is, may your name be revered as holy and good among the nations of the earth. Right? He says, your kingdom Come, we can pray for the coming of God's kingdom. May your will be done. Jesus not only teaches us to pray that, but he prays that himself. He says, pray that we will have the basics of what we need provided for us, that we will not be led into temptation, but that all of the schemes of the wicked one against us will be thwarted, that God will preserve us and keep us in his grace for all the days of our life. That's simple. That's not elaborate. If you want to pray the Lord's Prayer, that's great. If you want to make it even simpler, you can pray it in NIV instead of King James. 
You can put it in your own language, right? God doesn't care if you pray in King James. He just wants you to pray and to pray things that even He tells you to pray and to pray things for His glory. The Lord's Prayer is not an elaborate, flowing, masterful prayer. It's simple and it's basic. Peter says we should cast our anxieties on the Lord because He cares for us. That God loves us. That He's not just our God, but He's our Heavenly Father. And Jesus says that if, if you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God, who is good, give good gifts to His children? But when we approach God in prayer, we should approach God with confidence. Jesus says that we should pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. James says we should pray for the sick and we should pray for wisdom. We should pray with faith. The Scripture is full of things that we should pray for. And God doesn't care if we mutter or stutter or stammer. He doesn't care if our words flow together perfectly, seamlessly. God prefers simple, humble, heartfelt prayers. He doesn't care if other people like your prayers. In fact, God says that He despises the prayers of those who pray for the praise of other people. We pray with each other, and we pray for each other, but we do not pray to each other. I remember my very first experience at Chick-fil-A. If you know me, you know this was a life-changing experience. It was life-changing. I, I had lived just about three or four blocks within a half a mile from Chick-fil-A for over a year and a half, and I'd never been. It's really a, a tragedy. I didn't know what it was. And so one of my seminary buddies decides that he needs to show this Yankee Chick-fil-A before he goes back home to Yankeedom. And so we go to Chick-fil-A one day for lunch, and it was life-changing, not just because of this delicious chicken sandwich and, oh, that Chick-fil-A sauce and the, the waffle fries and the wonderful lemonade. It was, it was a wonderful experience, but... It was life-changing because we sat down to eat, and he says, let me pray. He says, God, thank you for this food. Amen. And it struck me, because I had been in seminary for the last three and a half years. He'd been in seminary for the last seven years. That's a long time to be in seminary. But it was simple. It was heartfelt. He was grateful that God, in this instance, had kept his word to provide for our needs. It wasn't a long flowing, seminary-trained barrage of verbiage. It was just a grateful prayer. This is Solomon's simple prayer. It's just a few verses long. And most of it is spent giving thanks to God for how good He is. Only, only one little line is spent asking for something. And it's simple. Give me discernment that I can serve your people well. God responds generously. Verses 10 to 14. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. 
God invites Solomon to pray for whatever he feels he needs most. And Solomon prays for wisdom that he might serve God's people well. That is, that in this moment, it was Solomon's greatest desire that God's people be blessed. And that prayer blessed the Lord. And the Lord blessed that prayer. And he answered that prayer, and he added to it. Solomon could have asked for any number of things which the Lord recounts here. Riches, power, the death of his enemies. We went through a whole bunch of enemies in chapter 2. There's certainly some who are left. But instead, he just simply asks that God's people would benefit from his own life and kingship. That reminds me of Jesus. By God's providence on Thursday, Thursdays is the day I usually write my sermons for the morning. And on Thursday, I was reading through Matthew's gospel. I was very, getting very near to the end of Matthew's gospel in my morning reading and came to Jesus in Gethsemane. This is Jesus just minutes from being betrayed, just hours from being convicted in a kangaroo court, and then being scourged, tortured, mutilated, and crucified. That's not even the worst of it. Just hours from suffering the infinite wrath of God against our sin in his own person, being forsaken by his heavenly Father. And he's there in the garden, He's under such duress that the capillaries in his scalp begin to burst, and he actually begins to physically sweat drops of blood. And when he prays, he asks for mercy. But his ultimate prayer is, your will be done. That's practicing what you preach. Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done. When Jesus faces the greatest anguish that could ever possibly be faced, he still prays, your will be done. And in that prayer, he prays for what is best for us. He could have prayed for all the power of the world to be given to him as Satan had offered him in the wilderness. He could have prayed to be assumed into heaven like Elijah. He could have prayed for the death of Judas and Pilate and the Sanhedrin. But he prays for God's will to be done. And God's will in this instance was to have Jesus die in order that we could have our sins forgiven and be given eternal life. Like Isaiah the prophet says, that it was the Lord's will to crush him that we might not be crushed. When we pray, it's good to pray for all kinds of things. It's good to pray for the health and well-being of others. It's good to pray for peace. It's good to pray for all these things. But our overriding prayer should be the same as this from Jesus, Lord's Prayer, and from the garden. Your will be done. That should be the chief prayer on our lips, no matter what the time or the circumstance. And as great as Solomon's prayer was, and it was great, Jesus' prayer is greater. Because Solomon was a great king in many ways, but Jesus is a far greater king. Jesus says in Luke 11, 31, now something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is that something greater than Solomon. 
Paul says in Colossians 2 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you recognize the language that's used there? Not to him are given all the treasures of wisdom, but in him are all the treasures of wisdom. That is that he is the, the fountain from which all wisdom flows. When Solomon prays asking for wisdom, it is Jesus who gives him some of his wisdom. That Solomon receives it, but Jesus is the source of it. So far greater is Jesus than Solomon that everything Solomon had, he owed to Christ. He's the greater king. And as God answered Solomon's prayer, so he answers Jesus' prayer. We read in Ephesians 1, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Paul writes his prayer out. His prayer is for them. But then he reminds us that when Jesus prayed, your will be done, it was the Father's will not only to crush him, but to exalt him, to make him the great king of kings, to crown him and put everything under his feet, both in this age and in the age to come. God had promised Solomon that in your lifetime there will be no king who is your equal. In Jesus' lifetime, recall Jesus lives forever, there is no king who will ever be like him. God always answers the prayers of his people. He answered Solomon's prayer. He answered Jesus' prayer. He answered Paul's prayer. And he answers our prayers. And he answers them when they're given for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. And so we should be unashamedly and boldly a people of God-centered, Bible-filled prayer. We should start today. Let's pray together. God, we remember the words of the Father who said, I believe, help my unbelief. Perhaps many of us can say, I want to pray, help me to pray. Help us to know what to pray, when to pray, how to pray. Help us to be bold to pray even together not just before dinner, and not just by ourselves, but as a church, as brothers and sisters who know that there is power in prayer. Not our power. Not power in long, flowing, eloquent words. But your power. 
you give yourself to your people when they pray. And help us to remember that we don't barge into your throne room unannounced in prayer. But that you open the doors and you call us to come. And you say, ask for whatever you want in my name. And my Father will do it. We ask for your forgiveness. For not taking you up as we ought to on your most generous of offers. And we pray that as individuals and as a church, you would help us to have the same praise in our prayers as Solomon did here, and the same humility as Solomon and Christ did, and that you would answer our prayers before our very eyes. We pray above all else that in our lives, in our church, and in this, your world, both now and forever, your will would be done, and that we would be glad in it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.